why does the Hulk make such a good gardener? Because he has two green thumbs. <laughs> and eight green fingers to back that up, too. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Starting Sustainability, episode 68. I'm your host, Kaylin Chenoweth. Hello, everybody. I hope you had a great, wonderful past week. I'm so excited because it is March 1st, which means that the compost facility closest to me will now be extending their hours and they will be open on Saturdays from March 1st all the way to the end of September. So I can officially start composting. Yay! And by that, I mean I'm going to collect it in a bucket and every Saturday drive it up to the facility and they can do all of the hard work. <laughs> I am very excited because I finally can check this off my bucket list of things that I've been trying to do. I also wanted to share a very interesting conversation that I had with my husband this past week. We currently have a bidet sprayer and it is primarily used for spraying out the poo on cloth diapers. And it literally looks like the sprayer attachment that you have at your kitchen sink to get all the gunk off of your dishes. Except this is now attached to the toilet and you can clean yourself after using the restroom with it. However, it's extremely cold water that shoots out of it and we have it set on full blast. <laughs> so it's not really comfortable either. You may remember that on my 2020 bucket list, I wanted to get a temperature controlled bidet sprayer to use personally and I wanted to get my husband to try it and use it. I did bring it up and mention it multiple times and every time I got quite a a weird look from him like you're crazy <laughs> which I get that some of my ideas are pretty outlandish we had many conversations back and forth about the logistics of it and putting it in where the kids gonna mess with it and that was pretty much the biggest one <laughs> which bathroom we would put it in and at the end he just kept reminding me no I'm not going to use it no I'm not going to use it and by the end of 2020 we still had not gotten one and now we are in 2021 and the discussion has kind of been put on the back burner. I just dropped it for a little bit. And I'm bringing this all back up because this past week, my husband was watching videos on YouTube and an ad came up and it was for the Dude Wiper 1000. And it was quite a very comical commercial for manly bidet sprayers. And he watched it and laughed. And then he showed it to me and we both laughed. And then he was on Amazon looking it up, looking at the day sprayers. <laughs> so all that work that I did the whole past year, nothing at all. But when a funny commercial comes on, now suddenly it's a good idea. Did he end up buying one? In the end, he opted not to, but he does have it in his car for later. However, I am very happy to see that he is warming up to the idea. Slowly, but surely. We'll get there. We'll get there. The end of 2021 has not come yet. I still have time to check that off of my bucket list as well. Today, I have a wonderful episode planned out for you all about beginner gardening. And I was able to get a hold of Tisa Watts from Columbus Garden School to come onto the podcast and give us all the information that we need to be successful beginner gardeners. Let's listen in now to the interview with Tisa Watts from Columbus Garden School. 
When I look into gardening, it seems as if every plant has different needs and rules. Time of year to plant, where to plant them, how far apart to plant them, the type of soil they need, how often to water, and I totally get overwhelmed very easily. I've attempted gardening twice in the past and both times failed miserably, most likely because I didn't do my research. So if you're like me, a newbie to gardening who is completely clueless, this is the episode for you. Today, I have Tisa Watts from Columbus Garden School here to give us a crash course in gardening. Welcome, Tisa. Say hello. Hi. Hi, hi. Go ahead. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the Columbus Garden School. I am the founder of the Columbus Garden School here in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I kind of came at it from sort of a, a circuitous route. Um, 20 years ago, I got a degree in horticulture and landscape design when I was living out in California. And uh, that was kind of the route that I took for a while. I did a lot of you know, residential landscape design. And um, the time that I came into, into this field, it was um, pretty conventional. People were still using lots of pesticides and exotic plants and things like that. And uh, that was fine. I learned a lot, did a lot. Um, but eventually, uh, we decided to come back home to Ohio, to the Midwest. And when we got here, I realized there was so much more that I needed to learn. And it was wonderful because I had the experience of gardening in a very different place, a very different climate, and then coming back to Ohio and learning how to do things over again and to see where things that I had done before still applied and where there was a bit of a delta and uh, had to learn some new things. But I, I went from being um, a landscape designer into education because I found that the more clients that I talked to, the more they wanted to know. You know, I would design these lovely, elaborate landscapes for folks and they'd be like, this is great. I love it. How do you take care of it? And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to work with people. So I became a garden coach and uh, did that for a lot of years. And that was wonderful because it, it also combined in the design aspect. But I'll tell you, a big part of coming back to the Midwest was being able to start a school because I don't know if you've heard about this, but land is kind of expensive in California. We were able to find a couple of acres right here in Columbus, and um, it's uh, the rest is history. We've, um, with the pandemic, we're doing a lot more on Zoom, and uh, that's also been kind of a blessing. We're getting people from all over the place coming to our classes, you know, all over the country. Yeah, I see you're actually pretty active. You're a member of the Starting Sustainability Facebook group, and I see you post your classes for Columbus Garden School on there. That's actually how I found you and reached out to you. I was like, hey, I'm terrible at gardening and I need help. <laughs> so come on the podcast. Yeah, we do offer um, classes in gardening and it's every aspect of gardening, everything from starting seeds to, you know, how do you grow tomatoes to um, dealing with weeds and pests all the way into how do you make compost after all the plants die? And we also do um, homesteading kinds of things. Uh, if people are interested in raising chickens or having beehives or, or preserving food. Um, we also have construction classes for women, which have been hugely popular. Yep. Well, you're a perfect fit for the Starting Sustainability Group. Thank you for joining. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Well, let's go ahead and dive into it and we'll talk about gardening. So I think the first question to clarify is what are the different types of outdoor gardening? You mean like you can be growing vegetables and things like that? Well, I was thinking like raised beds or the hanging plants or the hydroponics, like what's, what's the difference and where are they best applicable? So if I'm a newbie, which is the easiest one to start with? 
Oh, let's start with, okay, because that, that's a whole different category. I would say stick to things that are either in large pots or in the ground. Because honestly, plants that don't have to go through a lot of rapid change are going to be happier plants. And uh, if you have things that are in hanging baskets or sort of above ground things uh, or small pots, they're going to dry out faster. They're going to heat up quicker. And uh, plant roots, especially the tops of the plants can take quite a bit of change, but plant roots generally like it pretty calm and, uh, and dark and moist. So I would say if you're a new gardener, start with large containers. And by large, I mean like 18 inches across or at least knee high. So like a five-gallon bucket? That would work. Yeah, as long as there's holes in it. Because, you know, they call a, a pot with no holes. They call that a bog. Okay, it's got to drain. <laughs> if it doesn't no, I didn't drain, know that. You're, growing, you're growing a swamp. Yes, you, you have swamp plants, and they're most likely to be dead plants. No, so just make sure whatever you, you can use a lot of stuff for pots. I mean, there's all kinds of creative things that people do. But um, just make sure it's got some holes in the bottom so the water can drain out. Because you got to water it, and then you got to let it drain. Okay. Which plants are the easiest to grow or which ones are the hardest to kill? Whichever way, (laughs) however you want to phrase that question. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a good one. Um, I would say, so I kind of, in my world, we, in my world in particular around the school, you know, we sort of divide plants into two sort of significant groups. And one is edibles. You know, what are you growing uh, this summer in your climate? What are you going to grow that can live year over year? And then the other kind of plants that we tend to talk about a lot in the school are things like perennials and native plants and trees and shrubs and so forth and kind of different aspects to both. But if people are starting vegetable gardens uh, for the first time, grow things that are easy and, you know, it does help to kind of know what grows well in your area. What grows really well in Georgia is not going to be the same as what grows well in Wisconsin. And so um, it does do, it does help to do a little bit of research. Um, but some of the things are always reliable and things like green beans, you cannot go wrong with green beans. You stick the beans in the ground, they grow, they're wonderful. They're easy to, you know, you can see when they're ready. Tomatoes are not usually that hard. There's a lot of problems with tomatoes that come later in the season, but it's not hard to grow a tomato. A perfect tomato is kind of like a perfect rose. That's, that's a little harder, but do you need a perfect tomato? Maybe, maybe not. My plan is to eat it. So I don't care what it looks like. Yeah, right. (laughs) I want it to taste good. (laughs) I think as long as you take into consideration that you need to have a fairly decent place for that plant to put their roots, as long as you meet their minimum needs, they will reward you with being, you know, with growing pretty well. And so that means giving them um, good potting mix if it's in if it's in the uh, if it's in a container, or maybe amending the soil if you are starting a new part of the yard if you're creating raised beds or if you're going to dig a hole in the ground and and plant things there. What do you mean by amending the soil? Amending the soil. Um, a lot of times, especially if let's say you have a backyard and you've been using it for all kinds of things except gardening, you know, you've got kids and dogs and you know whatever else happening out there, sports and kicking around the soccer ball. The soil may not be ready for prime time when it comes to vegetable gardening. So you are probably going to want to loosen the soil. Chances are if people have been walking across it, it's pretty compacted. Uh, and then you're going to want to add probably some compost. And compost is simply decomposed plant material. Well, usually, 
But if you're going to go to the store and buy a bag of compost, it's most likely going to be decomposed plant material. And it helps deliver both a little bit of nutrition to the, to the soil and to the plants that are growing there. And it also helps loosen up the soil so that the roots can actually get in there and be happy and not just be living, you know, sort of half alive in the top four inches of soil. So do I need to get a tiller? Is that how I loosen it up? Oh, Lord, no. Um, if, you, if you're going to be growing you some crops, if you're going to planning to, you know, put in a quarter acre of, of corn, by all means, do get a tiller. Um, uh, most people don't need a tiller. Most people just need a good spading fork, and you can look what that looks like online, um, or a shovel. Um, most plants in the vegetable garden don't go down much beyond about a foot, foot and a half. So it's not like you have to dig this big, huge, deep hole. Um, you just need to kind of dig down, flip it over, add some compost, mix it in, water it to settle the soil, let the, you know, kind of, so it's not too fluffy, get some of the oxygen out and let the soil settle and then plant whatever it is that you're going to plant. So when do I start planting? What time of year is go time? Again, it depends on the plant, depends on the, on the person. And I, I think, um, you know, the, the other thing that I was going to mention about, like you asked, when's the best time to, to, you know, what's easy to grow, what's not easy to grow. The bottom line is you always want to grow things that are happy in your climate. They're happy in your soil, the soil type that you have already, um, more or less. Um, they're happy with your type of spring, your type of summer, your type of fall. For example, here um, in Columbus, Ohio, our springs typically are wet and cold. And so we have plants that like wet and cold. They think wet and cold is awesome in spring. You know, we have hot and humid summers. Other parts of the country don't have this kind of humidity. And, and I miss those places really, um, having lived in California. But <laughs> nevertheless, um, I, do love, I do love Ohio for a lot of things. Humidity is not one of them. But there are plants that actually need that and you know, thrive in that. So um, whether you're planting vegetables or fruit trees or native plants or whatever, the plants that are hardest to kill and easiest to grow are the ones that already like the way we are now. You don't have to do anything to fix it for them. So um, in terms of when to plant things, uh, again, it depends on the plant. If we're talking about vegetables in an annual garden, things that grow from seed and grow all the way up to producing, you know, flowers and fruit or vegetables and then die at the end of the year, it depends on what they are. Some of our plants that we like to grow here, things like tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, these are actually semi-tropical plants that did not originate in Ohio. They originated uh, a lot of them in Central America, uh, some far, far away in other countries, but um, we have adapted them to living here. But if we ask them to grow in cold spring weather, they're going to be deeply unhappy. But if you ask them, uh, you know, if we put them out, if we grow them from seedlings in a very protected situation, like in a greenhouse, we can put those out in June, but not before June, because if they get cold, that's it. They're done for. They just, they can't, they can't survive it. Then we have these other plants that are really, they're fine. They're like, we don't care if it's cold, bring it, you know, uh, things like spinach and broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cabbages are only too happy if you want to stick them out in the yard in, in March. I mean, a lot of people here start uh, English peas beginning in March. They think of St. Patrick's Day as their day of putting things in. 
personally, I'm not that ambitious. I'll wait a couple weeks, but um, <laughs> that's me, you know, just some people are so eager to get things in the ground. And I think that that is often the biggest rookie mistake that I see is people being impatient, you know, and they, they want it to be green because it can be pretty gray here in the Midwest. We're just so excited. I know. <laughs> and then we fail and get frustrated. <laughs> you know, it, it's, I get asked a lot, you know, um, you know, when, when's a great time, you know, when should you start a garden? And my, my, I have a couple of thoughts on that. And it's essentially the, you know, we're in the middle of an ice storm. <laughs> if I hand you a shovel and say, go outside and start a garden, you know, this that's a terrible idea. Um, but here it is, it's February. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the warm days are, are still pretty far out there. So a month or two or three away. Um, but now is a great time to start a garden. If I hand you a pencil, you know, and if I hand you some catalogs, and if I tell you to get online and to learn as much as you possibly can, this is a great time to learn to garden. And I feel like so many folks um, underestimate how important planning is to good gardening. They think you just go to the garden center, you get a bag of this and a, some fertilizer and some plants and you just fling them in the ground. And that does work for some people. You will get a result. But, you know, if you, if you want to grow things successfully, if you want to see things that actually produce the, the, the edible things that you want or the flowers that you really want, it does pay off to spend some time in planning. Do spend some time, you know, draw out the area that you want to grow things. Get an accurate measurement of how big the yard is because you cannot do square foot gardening with tomatoes. I'm, I'm sorry to say it will not grow in one square foot. It's going to need more like, you know, nine square feet. Um, you know, be realistic about what you want to grow and research them. You know, think about what varieties are going to do really well for me here. And I'll give you a resource on that. And that is no matter where anybody is listening to this in the United States, um, every state has a state agricultural extension service that's tied to their, to a university, to a land grant university. So here in Ohio, it's the Ohio State um, University Extension Service. And you can contact them um, and ask questions, but you can also just go to their website. And a lot of these schools, Purdue is another one, um, uh, University of Pennsylvania, even Kentucky University. I mean, there's a lot of really good ag schools that have really good information about what to grow, um, what problems you're likely to see. Because again, they're, they're working for farmers, but they're also working for homeowners. That's your tax dollars at work. So don't, don't be shy. Go out there and just jump in and say, you know, growing tomatoes in Ohio or growing well, not growing corn in Indiana, you'll get a thousand returns on that. Um, you know, growing peppers in Indiana or growing eggplant in Kentucky, and you will get some really good information and you'll get suggestions about varieties that have done well for other people um, in your area. So that's, that's a really good resource. Can you explain what the zones are? Mm. When I have bought in the past a packet of seeds on the back, it'll have a picture of the U.S. and the different zones. And then I got to try to figure out where I am, which zone, and when to plant this seed. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all good. Yeah, and, and it is helpful because you can look at that little teeny tiny picture and, uh, you know, get a sense of where you are. What those zones refer to is um, the USDA put together a zone map of the United States, and it's helpful for, for gardeners and farmers. Again, this being a, an old agricultural country back way back when, 
Um, and those numbers are referring to what is the coldest temperatures you are likely to sustain in that zone. So for example, I am, um, well, climate change has changed things a little bit. Actually the zones are, uh, people are finding themselves being bumped into warmer zones. Here in Columbus, I am in zone 6A. Uh, and so that means that in the middle of the winter, I'm going to get it down to, let's say, I can't remember offhand what the numbers are, but, you know, I probably will not, we may hit zero a couple of times, and that would not be way off base. We're more likely to have more days at 10 or 20. And right now we're in a cold snap. So we're seeing some seriously cold weather. A few years ago, polar vortex, that blew all the numbers off the map. But the thing is, is if you plan for plants in your area, for example, my perennials, my trees, my shrubs. Yeah, I'm technically zone six, but I'm going to look at those tags and say, this plant, I want plants that go down to zone five or four so that I don't have to worry about them in January when we have an ice storm. You know, I know they're okay. I know my red oaks are fine. I know, you know, that the, the maples are going to be fine, you know, whatever it is. Um, but the zones refer to how cold does it get in the winter? But it also reflects a little bit about how, what that growing season is like. Factually, just the lower temperatures, but realistically, there's more information when you start to dig around, especially on the internet, or if you buy yourself some gardening books, and you'll find that, you know, gardening in zone five, you know, um, there's going to be a whole bunch of things that are tied together with that climate. When it comes to planting, I'll get the packet of seeds. And I did that because it was cheaper than buying the actual plant. However, my luck was not very good. So I'm wondering, is it better to do the seeds? Is it better to do the plant in the garden? As a newbie gardener, <laughs> what's the better route? Or I know you can also like grow seeds in advance indoors and then transplant them. All that's kind of over my head. Okay, so new gardener, I would say for certain plants, buy transplants. Let somebody else fuss with growing tomatoes and peppers and things that most people don't realize that when you go to the to the garden center in May and you're looking at all the tomatoes and the peppers and all these plants, they're already four months old, five months old. They didn't just pop up a month ago. They've actually been on that long ramp up to getting to where they can actually send them to the garden center and sell them for $4 or whatever it is. Um, let somebody else grow those. Those are really tough. That said, there are some things that you really do need to grow from seed, and it's going to be most of your root vegetables. Things that grow like uh, turnips and beets and radishes and carrots, much better if you just simply put the seeds in the ground. Some are easier than others. Carrots are a little tricky because the seeds are so freaking tiny. Um, beets and turnips, really easy. You can sort of see where everything is going and put it in the ground, but they don't transplant well. So you want to do those beans. There's no reason to buy a bean plant. Um, they germinate and grow so easily and the seeds are big and uh, likewise like sunflowers and things like that. Super easy to grow from seed. But some of the things that just take a really long season, let somebody else get them started and, and do them as a transplant because, you know, um, starting seeds indoors is a whole other art form and it's a lot of work. And we have a class coming up, I think, in a week or so that's all about seed starting. It's, it's like that biology class you missed in high school. <laughs> and, and now it's like, now I really want to know, like, you know, what is a cotyledon? You know, wh why do I care? Um, now you have a reason. So once I have the plants mm -hmm. or seeds, if there are intermediate or advanced people listening on the podcast, 
where do I plant them? Because I was reading terms that I'm hoping you can define, like sun, partial shade, full shade. Like, how do I know <laughs> which parts of my yard are these? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, those are all really good. Where do you put things? Rule of thumb is generally that if a plant is a heavy producer of something, of flowers, of fruit, of vegetables, it needs full sun. Okay? It's photosynthesis is how a plant generates its own food supply. Full sun, in my mind, means about eight hours of direct sunshine on your leaves. Okay. Yeah. People will say that part sun is, you know, four to six hours. And then shady is anything where you're really not getting any sun, probably maybe some morning sun or dappled sun kind of thing. And there are plenty of things that will grow in those uh, situations, but not usually the things that we eat. The things that we eat tend to want full sun. But again, you're not going to get as good berries. They're not going to be as high quality and you probably won't get as many if they're growing in the shade. Do root vegetables grow in the shade? Because I would think they wouldn't need as much sun. You would think so, but they need that sun on the leaves, right? They're not just, they're not just root vegetables. They they're often have lots of, of things up above. No, they absolutely do need sun. I grow my beets and turnips and all that in full sun. However, in areas like us here in the Midwest, where it gets roasting hot in the middle of the summer, um, if you do want to grow things like uh, spinach or chard or lettuce, God forbid you want to grow lettuce in July, um, you're going to probably want to have it under some shade. And that can either be shade cloth that blocks out, let's say, 30 or 40% of the sun or dappled sun under a tree or something like that. So um, they need it a little bit cooler. It's actually, it's not so much a sun issue as it is a heat issue. They're just going to cook in the sun. Oh, uh, see, I attempted gardening when I lived in Texas many, like seven, eight years ago. <laughs> and I was like, okay, full sun. So I put it in the spot of the yard that got zero shade. And then like it, my plants were burning. <laughs> it looked like there were scorch marks on the plants. And then somebody was like, oh, put a shade, like a sheet cloth over it. So I got a bedroom sheet and stake poles, but it was way too late by then. But I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> That's gardening. And, I, and people are always like, oh, I'm terrible. I kill everything. I was like, I have to ask, you know, if you're not killing things, are you really a gardener? You know, because that's what gardeners do. We kill things. But the important distinction that I like to make is that did you learn anything from it? Did you figure out what it is that you did wrong? What would you do differently next time, maybe sooner? And, you know, what you knew is that growing this particular thing in Texas, it was too hot and the sun was too intense at that time of year doesn't mean that it wouldn't have grown successfully in May or in October. When I look at all the different vegetable plants that I want to plant and I read the back, this one says, you know, three to four seeds, six inches apart or 12 inches apart or 18 inches apart. So that gets, now it gets very challenging to draw up a garden plan, trying to figure out all the spacing and measurements. I feel like a rocket scientist trying to coordinate all of this. Do you have any tips on keeping that straight and not screwing it up? Figure out which way is north. Realize that the sun is coming from the south. Short stuff on the south side, tall stuff on the north side. That's one way Oh, that start. is a good tip. <laughs> yeah. I would have never thought of that. Shade everything, you know. And I always, you know... The, the biggest mistake that I often see new people make, it, it, whether it's vegetable gardening or landscaping or anything, is trying to cram too much into too small a space. And so I would say 
And it's really hard when you're new to kill things that you've grown. And a little seedling has come up and it's now got four leaves, and, but they're all too close, but you can't decide which one to kill. Well, you're going to have to kill some of them or else none of them are going to be happy. And that, again, is, is, is a, a newbie issue of planting things, too many things too close together. So I would say kind of have general areas of where you're going to have radishes and where you're going to have a tomato. And I would say when you're starting out, you know, give yourself six different things you want to grow. Um, give yourself the opportunity to try a couple of techniques. Like a tomato stays in place all summer, pretty much in one spot. And you need to give it a trellis. You need it to, so you can get it up off the ground. So it's not all, everything's not just sprawling everywhere. So there's a whole set of skills that you can learn right from that one plant. Um, maybe grow beans on a trellis. So that's a whole thing. Uh, grow a couple of root vegetables. I love Swiss chard because it makes every gardener look like a really good gardener. It's really hard to screw up Swiss chard, uh, you know, and, and do and look for the successes. Don't make it so hard. Make it easy. You'll learn a lot from success as well as from killing things. I read a little tiny bit about companion planting and that you can plant something together that'll make them thrive and you can plant plants too close, like two varieties of plants together that will hinder the growth. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was an entire day of trying to figure that out and where to put things in my garden. <laughs> So, so companion planting is, is intriguing to people. And, um, and there is some evidence to support that there are some relationships between plants. Um, a lot of what happens in the vegetable garden is very anecdotal. It's not scientific. And there's a good reason for that. And that's because there's no money to be made on companion planting. You're not going to sell any pesticides. You're not going to sell any extra fertilizer. You know, there's, so there's a reason why it's not been studied that much, but um, it's also makes me hesitate to um, invest too much energy in, because I also look at these different charts and a lot of times they are absolutely in conflict with each other. But there are some things that do have a well-earned reputation. They say that, for example, fennel has no friends. And uh, if you've ever had fennel, it's a, an Italian vegetable that is quite lovely, but apparently nothing else likes to grow near it. So if fennel has to, if you, if you really love fennel and you really want to grow it, then you need to find a spot in your yard that you're going to grow that and nothing else every year. Another plant that's very similar to that is black walnuts. They say that there, you know, nothing will grow underneath a black walnut tree. And there's a couple of reasons for that, not the least of which is that it throws a lot of shade. Um, but there is a chemical, juglone, that comes off the roots and uh, can inhibit other plants from growing. And so, for example, you don't want to put in an apple orchard right next to a row of black walnuts. They're not going to thrive. They're not going to be happy. Um, they're really not going to be doing things. But to say that nothing grows under walnuts is, is not true. There's plenty of things that will grow quite happily. But sometimes you have to do a little bit of that research. And also, again, when you are trying to um, solve, problem solve in the garden, the best thing you can do is to go and, and get as much good information as you can about the problem. So people who might have black walnuts are like, oh, I'm just going to give up. I can't do anything. Woe is me. I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, go out there and Google what grows under black walnuts, you know, uh, look for scientific articles or articles put out by universities or um, groups that are not trying to sell you something. 
learn as much as you can about like, what is the source of the chemical that's causing the problem? It's not just the roots. Turns out that it's also in the leaves and the husks of walnuts. And if you just leave those on the ground year after year after year, dropping into your tomato plants, well, by golly, yes, it will accumulate. So there are things that you can always do, but try not to get too overwhelmed. Just take one problem on at a time. Are there plants that benefit each other from getting planted beside one another? Yes, there are. For example, um, people are always like, well, it's a vegetable garden. It's not a flower garden, you know, or it's this and it's not that. And in fact, you should be growing flowers in your vegetable garden because what it will do is it'll bring in the pollinators. That makes that a, a, a beneficial relationship between those plants. Um, other plants, especially a lot of the herbs, will bring in um, beneficial insects that will go after problem insects. They will be predators of, you know, they'll bring in the ladybugs that will go after, you know, the aphids. So there, there are relationships between plants, but again, like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go out there and say you must do this with companion planting because I'm not an expert. And most of the, most of the information out there is anecdotal, not scientific. When it comes to planting everything, is it best to just do a row of veggies, a row of flowers, a row of herbs, and just keep alternating or just kind of do the rows of the vegetables and just kind of intermingle herbs and flowers wherever there's space? Your question is a great follow-up to what I just said, and that is, do you only do a block of something and then a block of something? And a block? Now, if you're growing corn, you need a block of something. You should have at least like a 10 by 10 foot patch because of the way they pollinate. But most other plants you can do, I would say alternate rows or, you know, mix things in. You can also do a technique called interplanting, which is like, let's say you were growing something pretty tall, a corn or something like that. You can actually plant something that grows much lower beneath it, like clover or lettuce or some other, you know, an herb or something like that. And um, there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually good because it's also a technique that um, helps build soil and it also helps suppress weeds because what weeds want more than anything is a bare patch of earth. If you're starting a new garden, start exactly the amount that you can handle this year and be realistic about the amount of time you have, you know, start small because you can always grow bigger. And the other thing is that start small, you know, start with that four by eight piece, knowing that you are using it to learn. And that every piece that you add from then on is going to be 50% easier and then 50% easier and 50% easier. But if you start it all at once and you have this massive failure and you've got weeds and bugs, you're going to be so discouraged, you're not going to stay with it. And that's a shame because gardening is awesome. I wish I could make it easier. You do make it easier. You have Columbus Garden School and you offer online classes. I'm telling you, it is like the bomb. It is the, it is the best thing ever. Yeah, we, I, I got to say, I love my job. It does get easier. It, it, is a, it is a cumulative. You don't, you don't forget things. You, you learn something and then you apply it to the next thing. And what you learn in growing, you know, a tomato, take that knowledge and you grow and you think about your Japanese maple and what does it need? And, you know, it's, it's a building up of, of knowledge and beginning gardeners, the learning curve is so tremendous. It's just, don't get discouraged. Just keep watering, keep weeding, keep going out there and uh, it'll, 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 it'll shake out. I agree. The learning curve is very, <laughs> very real, very sharp. I was reading through and it said, you got to, this kind of plant goes in sandy soil and this one goes in loam. What the heck is loam or clay or well-drained? I have no idea what's under my grass. 
Let me tell you how to find out what's under your grass. And this, this is so important. So again, the first thing you need to do is to gather some data. And then you will know, can I grow this thing that only wants sand? Well, if you have clay, the answer is no. It will never be happy. But if you know what you have in terms of soil, in terms of the amount of available light during the day, do you have full sun, do you have part sun? Do you have um, an access to water nearby? The really fast way that you can figure out what kind of soil you have is to get a straight-sided jar, like a peanut butter jar, something like that, that's pretty big, that can hold a couple cups of water, and go out into the yard where you want your garden to be or where it is now, and dig down a little ways. You don't want to be in the top two inches of soil. You want to get down a little bit farther, maybe around six inches, and you're going to get about, let's say, half a cup of soil. And you're going to put it into that peanut butter jar, and you're going to fill it up with water, and you're going to shake the heck out of it. And what's going to happen is you're going to see a big muddy mix, probably. And then you're going to put that jar somewhere where it's not going to get bumped for about a day or two. And you will notice within a couple of hours that all the sediment is going to start settling out. Basically, all dirt is crushed up rock. And it comes in different grades. Sand, we all know what sand is. It's gritty. It's got fairly big particles. And most of us know what clay feels like. It's slippery. It's almost like flour, like wet flour in a way. Um, and silt is sort of just in between. That's all it is. Silt is just the grade in between clay and sand. And by letting your soil uh, settle out in that peanut butter jar, you're going to see the different layers. The biggest layer are the heaviest pieces on the bottom. And that's going to be sand. On top of that will be the silt. And then the things that take the longest to settle out because they are so light and the particle size is so small is the clay. And you can look at that and you can see sort of what are the proportions of what I have. And you can, there's books and there's charts online that will tell you roughly what is what. You know, if you have 30% this and 20% that and 50% this, then you have this kind of soil. And it can be very helpful to know, especially if you're at one end of the extreme or the other. If it's all clay or if it's all sand, then there's some issues. But usually most soils, especially in the Midwest, are going to be some combination of the three. And pretty much anywhere in the United States, you know, with the exception of like being in the mountains or in the desert or Texas, God forbid, you'll find that it is some combination of thing. And really the bottom line, if you're growing edibles, if you're growing food that produces a lot of energy in one year, adding compost on a yearly basis is a really good idea. You're adding organic material to this mineral mix. I might have missed it. Did you explain what loam is? Loam is in the middle. Oh, so loam is silt. Loam is sand, silt, and clay. Oh. It is the combination. It's the proportions of those. And, and there's like this magic triangle in the middle of the big triangle of, of you know, sand, silt, and clay that is loam. Every, every vegetable garden book is going to tell you you want loam. It's kind of a unicorn. So don't feel bad that you don't have perfect soil. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> If you're growing orchids, you better have exactly what that thing wants if you want it to bloom. But most of us are growing tomatoes, and tomatoes are pretty easy going, or peppers, or, you know, Swiss chard, or whatever. As long as you're in the ballpark, you'll be, you'll be all right. Now, you've talked a lot about compost and the importance of that. But when you go to the store, there's plant food, compost, fertilizer. What, what is the difference among the three? Or are they all the same? Which one's good for vegetables? <laughs> Compost, as I mentioned, usually comes in a big bag, and when you open it up, it looks and, and feels a lot like fluffy dirt, but there's no minerals in it, generally speaking. It's mostly going to be just decomposed plant material. It's going to be like wood chips thrown in with 
you know, chicken manure that they added pine needles and kitchen waste from a food processor or whatever it was. And they mixed it all up in a gigantic pile. And then they baked all the pathogens out of it and then um, put it in a bag and sent it to the store. Uh, you can also make compost at home. It's really easy, but it's a little intimidating, but that's okay. That's, that's another class. Fertilizer is simply plant nutrition. It is, um, it's food. Compost can provide some nutrition in very low doses, but fertilizer, generally speaking, is going to be concentrated uh, plant food, and it's going to be some variation of, generally speaking, if you're buying like an all-purpose fertilizer, it'll be some combination, some proportion of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And that's because those are the three elements that plants generally need the most and that they're in shortest supply of, and especially if you're growing things like fruits and vegetables and flowers. I say, keep it simple. Buy like a triple 10, 10, 10, 10, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. It's already all in the bag. If you buy an organic mix, they'll probably throw in a whole bunch of little minor elements. That's even better. And, and you can buy it as an all purpose. You can buy the individual ingredients and you can mix your own recipes. And, you know, I say, keep it simple if you're a new gardener. Yes. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. <laughs> I've read a couple of tips or hacks online, probably from Pinterest or Facebook. So I don't know if they're accurate or not. So I'm going to run them by you and you can tell me that you can take leftover coffee grounds, your used coffee grounds and eggshells and your hair. Like when you brush your hair and it accumulates on your brush or when you cut your dog or brush your dog, that hair, and that you're supposed to put that in with your plants and it's supposed to be really great and wonderful. Uh, the hair is a new one. Um, hair being mostly, I think, keratin. Um, you know, I think it was for the nitrogen in the hair because the hair is a protein source. It, your hair is essentially the same as your fingernails. Um, well, yeah, I, I guess you, you can put those in there too. <laughs> I can so fat. You're outside. You can do what you do is none of my business. Uh, we don't judge. I would think that the hair might be used as a, as a deterrent for certain herbivores, you know, who may not like the scent of it, perhaps, you know, deer or rabbits or whoever is nibbling on your whatever. Um, that's a new one, though. I've not heard that one. Um, goodness, I'll have to look, up, look that one up. The eggshells and coffee grounds. Yes, eggshells and coffee grounds are both fine. Um, they are both biodegradable, just like half the things that we take out of the refrigerator and eat or you know, the, the peels and shells and seeds and all of that can all go into the compost. It all is, will break down and become nutrients again. Um, eggshells, of course, are high in calcium. The mistake I think a lot of people make is that they get their eggshells, they crunch them up in their hands or whatever, and then they sprinkle them in the yard and they think that that's going to help the plants. And in fact, it will not help anything in the short term because it hasn't broken down to its elements, which you have are crunchy eggshells everywhere. And you can fling them in the grass, you know, I mean, it, they will break down. But if you want them to have a much quicker effect, you're going to need to like pulverize it. You need to make it into powder and then sprinkle it around. As far as coffee grounds, people seem to think that it's going to magically acidify the soil. It will. I mean, but if we're talking a family amount of coffee grounds, then um, no. I mean, if you're only putting out like half a cup of grounds a day, you know, or, or whatever, um, throw them on the compost heap by, by all means, put them in your compost. That's exactly where they belong. Um, they actually, I think, would serve better as organic material than as any sort of nutrient for your yard. Now I have, we have done, we did the coffee grounds when we lived in Florida because we had wicked 
fire ants everywhere. And so we started throwing the coffee grounds. Anytime that we'd find an anthill, we'd throw the coffee grounds on it. So I have another question in regards to gardening, and I'm sure it's not an easy answer. Mm. How often do I water and what time of day do I water? Okay. How do I answer that question? Oh, and also as a beginner, I'm afraid to drown my plants. I'm afraid of doing too much water. I would say that if you are a new plant person and you've just put something in the ground, your chances of drowning it are probably pretty good because you're going to be anxious. You're going to be like, oh, I don't want this plant to die. So I'm just going to keep giving it more water. When it starts to turn yellow, it's saying enough, enough, enough. Stop, stop, stop with the water. Um, best time of day generally to water, and this is more of a disease issue, um, is in the morning. In the morning means like before the day heats up. So if you can get out there in the summertime and water before like eight o'clock in the morning, that's ideal. Now, some people don't get up that early or they work crazy hours or for whatever reason, if you have to water at night, because that's the only time you can water, then water at night. You have to water sometime, you know, depending on the plant. How do you tell when to, to water? Again, getting back to observation. You have to know what your plant looks like when it's happy to know what it looks like when it's unhappy. There'll be a color shift. A lot of times the foliage will droop or if it turns yellow, you've got too much water. That's hard to say. A lot of times people will say, put your finger in the soil and that also works just, you know, right next to the plant, you know, right next to that pepper plant, put your hand in there. And if the top inch or so is dry, don't stress. But if it's dry farther down, then you might want to water. What's the best way to control pests? Oh, my goodness. Pick plants that they don't like is one. Depends on the pest. So we'll do like the common ones, like birds and bugs, I think are the big ones. Because bunnies and squirrels are more like just getting a fence or some type of perimeter. But the bugs and the birds tend to... If you have, yeah, generally your four-leggeds can be kept out with fencing. And honestly, it's probably the most humane, uh, reliable way of keeping four-legged creatures out of your stuff. When it comes to birds, it's tougher because you can use bird netting, but if you use the real lightweight stuff, you have an excellent chance of, of them getting really tangled up in it. So if you're going to use netting for birds, use the heavy stuff. Buy the deer level stuff. Um, it's a heavier plastic. Uh, insects, again, know your enemy. Learn as much as you can about that particular problem. Um, if you have cucumber beetles, we'll find out what uh, they're most attracted to. Um, a lot of people try to get certain vegetables into the ground too early, and then they're just, you know, uh, aghast when they discover that the squash vine borers or different insects show up and, and devastate their crop. And if they had just waited two or three weeks, they would have hit everybody else's plant I would just say, be patient, get advice from people who know what they're talking about in terms of insects. You can use um, certain insect sprays. You can use netting. I used uh, insect netting last year on cauliflower and it came out. It was perfect. I had never grown cauliflower that looked that good before, but this is a plant that doesn't require pollination. So it was fine being insect netted all season. Same with cabbages, same with uh, Brussels sprouts, broccoli. These are not plants that need pollination. So insect netting works great. When I was in Florida, I was so excited because plants were growing because in Texas, the heat was killing them all. And in Florida, it rains every single day. So I was like, sweet, this will be the easiest garden ever. And plants were growing, but the bugs were horrendous because it never freezes and the bugs are just 
relentless or terrible. And I was trying to do this organic and whatnot. And I went and got neem oil because that's what was recommended mm-hmm. to me. And I sprayed the neem oil on there and that just killed that just right there killed every single plant because nobody told me I had to dilute it. <laughs> that was my mistake. Ah, ah, oh my God. That is so true. <laughs> yes. That's great. But did you learn from the mistake? That's the gardening. Did you learn from what you did? I learned never buy neem oil again. <laughs> no, neem oil is actually not a bad product um, in the sense that you can use it when used correctly. It's very effective and it can be used both against insects, certain insects and against diseases certain diseases. It will not be effective on other things and it will not work if you don't follow the label instructions. What about bat houses? I was told if I just put up a bat house, that would control a lot of the bug issues. Oh, I wish. Um. <laughs> it's also not easy to find a bat house because I've been looking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You and everybody else who's at home on, on the Googleizer. Um, bat houses are a fantastic idea. Anytime that we can create more habitat for wildlife that belongs in your area, the better. And if you can build a bat house, build a birdhouse, create habitat, and especially if you can grow the plants that will create the habitat for those creatures, all the better. Perfect. So if I, <laughs> I remember helping my older sister when she was doing a garden, I was still in junior high, I think, and we were going out there with Q-tips and like rubbing it up on all the flowers, trying to pollinate it. So I remember I was going to ask you, I'm like, did that actually work? I think it would. Every plant has its own unique way of pollination. In general, the two major ways that plants pollinate is either going to be wind pollination or it's going to be insect pollination. So the Q-tips doesn't work? Is that what you're telling me? It depends on the plant. It depends on on, on what you were trying to do. Some people will go out there with the Q-tip and, for example, between squash plants, when they are first opening up, the male flowers tend to open before the females for about a week. And so people are out there pollinating all their male flowers. You know, that's not going to do anything. They're not going to make babies that way. So, yeah, it might have helped. Um, better, better yet, though, that you should bring in the bees plant something for them. What bees want? They want two things. The first thing they want is pollen, 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 pollen. That's, uh, and the other thing they want is nectar. And there's some plants that are really good at producing nectar. And uh, that's just the little sugary carbohydrate rich syrup that they want. And that's to feed the adults. That's the females that are out there flying all day. Like I need to eat something, you know, I need to stop and eat while I'm collecting all this pollen. So that's, that's for them. So if you put those two things in there, you know, if you plant it, they will come. So if I am lucky enough to get my garden, get the seeds planted, they grow, I don't drown them, I don't dehydrate the crap out of them, they make it to the end of summer, I've got the right pollinators and not any weeds or whatever, and I actually get vegetables. Yes. How do I know when they're ready to pick? I think when it comes to like peppers and tomatoes, you can kind of look and tell when they're ready. Yeah. But but like watermelon, you got to cut into it. Watermelon holder. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I was, I've been very tricked. It wasn't even my garden. It was, it was a friend of mine's. She's like, yeah. oh, this watermelon is large. It's got that big yellow spot on the bottom. I was like, all right, we cut into it. It's white on the inside. I'm like, this isn't even close to ready. That's the one fair because, you know, you, you're waiting, you're waiting, you wait. Again, you want to look for those varieties that do best in your area. And particularly with things that take a really long time, like melons, 
you want to make sure that you have a long enough season. So here in this part of the country, I have five months of solid growing season. I have it from mid-May to the end of September. When it comes to root vegetables, how do I know when those are ready? Because you pull it out and you're like, oh, the bean is too small. But how, how do you know when things are ready? You pull it out and it's too small. You say, I got to wait two weeks. Okay. You know, the other thing is I'll, I'll kind of brush the dirt off the shoulders and I'll see how big the shoulders are. And if they're really small, even though there's lots of top growth, uh-uh, she's not done yet. But again, it depends on the variety. I mean, there's, you know, dozens of kinds of beets, for example, and there's dozens of kinds of turnips. Um, so some you need to harvest when they're two inches across and some you're going to wait until they're four inches across, you know, got to keep the label, but I just throw everything into like a Ziploc bag, you know, all my tags, all my seed packets, all my whatever, or in a box or whatever makes you happy. But I know it's in there. I know that I can find out what the variety was because my memory will not protect me at all. It has been an absolute blast talking with you, uh, learning a lot. A lot of knowledge has been shared. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you may, I, I, you know, when I used to do consultations, I would say, you know, you're going to want to record this. <laughs> well, record this because we're, I'm, cause as soon as I leave, you're going to forget everything. And, you know, what I hope is that folks um, can listen to this and hear what they need in that moment and then maybe come back and listen to it again. When, what was she talking about, you know, with the watering or the compost or the, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, and yes, gardening, there's a lot of parts to it. It can be overwhelming, but it is so worth the rewards. It is so worth it. So stick with it, focus on the successes, learn from your failures, you know, take classes, read books, um, come to the garden school We'll be glad when we can have in-person classes again, but Zoom has also been pretty awesome. Remind us where to go to get to Columbus Garden School. Give us all your contact information. Oh, it's super easy. We are (laughs) www.columbusgardenschool.com. It's all one word. And uh, you'll see when you get there that we have a whole list of classes and they do change seasonally. So you might want to set yourself a reminder. If listeners of the podcast have additional questions that maybe I have not asked, is there an email if, that they can just email you their question real quick that you could answer? Absolutely. It's info at columbusgardenschool.com. And uh, although I think I answered every gardening question known to man today. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun. And, and again, um, you know, find those people in your life that like gardening and they, you know, especially if they're growing the things that you're interested in, they will, they will be glad to give you some advice. You know, you don't have to take all their advice. You don't have to take anybody's advice. Except yours. Take Tisa Watts's advice. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that the folks that teach here, I get approached by a lot of people who want to teach things. I have about a dozen instructors and I'm, I'm serious about this field. And, and, and there's a lot of people out there doing kind of woo woo things and, you know, telling you that you can use Epsom salts and Dawn dish soap on everything. And it's, it's just flat out wrong. And um, I want people to have good information and I want them to be successful and I want them to, to love gardening as much as I love gardening and uh, you know, or building things or raising chickens or bees or whatever it is. Um, you know, the things that we represent here are hopefully classes that are eco-friendly and that help people live in a way that is more meaningful to them, maybe a little slower, a little less tech fact-based 
Well, thank you. Thank you again. I really, really do appreciate you sharing all your knowledge. Please, Sustainer Nation, check out columbusgardenschool.com. Sign up for her classes. I've signed up for two. My first one is tomorrow night, actually. Oh, you're in garden maintenance. Very good. Yeah. Is that a good beginner's class? Uh, It's Deborah Kanapke. She taught uh, horticulture at community college for about 24 years. Okay. All right. Good, good. (laughs) All right. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you again, Tisa, for coming on board to the Starting Sustainability Podcast and sharing all of your information. We covered a lot, a lot of information, but we actually didn't even cover all of it. (laughs) There were two hours of audio and I had to edit it down to one hour And that goes to show there is still so much more information that you can learn when it comes to gardening. So please, please do check out Columbus Garden School. You can go to their website and they also have a Facebook group. Join their group and you will get lots of good information on gardening tips, when to start, how to handle seedlings, pest control, everything that we talked about and so much more. I do want to take this time to give you a quick update on our merchandise. You can go to the Start Sustainable shop on Etsy and see all of our handmade merchandise that has been repurposed from items and cloth and fabrics and turned into really beautiful handcrafted items by our lovely merchandise maker, Amanda. We've added on napkins, bandanas, and hankies so you can blow your nose (laughs) so you can sustainably blow your nose lots of cool stuff that's always getting added on there so be sure to check it out remember it is start sustainable and that's because starting sustainability was already taken (laughs) but for everything else go to starting sustainability.com backslash episode 68 for show notes Go to Starting Sustainability for the Facebook group and go to Starting underscore Sustainability for Instagram. Come back next week and tune in to listen to my interview with Tom Bowman. He is the author of What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple. He shares with us the one easy rule that we can follow to basically stop climate change. That's it. One simple rule. We can do it. Thank you again, Sustainer Nation. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. And as always, continue to stay sustainable. Bye.